This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm welcoming back Yarp Switters again for another conversation. He's been on the podcast before, and we're going to talk to Yarp about doing research independently as a practitioner in your own clinic. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So in this episode, we're going to welcome back Yarp Switters again. And you've heard from Yarp before, if you've been listening to the podcast on previous episodes, he was on the last episode. We're talking about Movember and men's health and chronic pelvic pain, a really, really interesting discussion from Yarp. Um, So really well worth going back and listening to and taking lots of notes as I did. So this time we're going to change direction a little bit, and we're going to talk about something really interesting that Yarp's done in his own clinic, which is publish research, and in his case, case studies of patients that he's seen in his clinic, and he's gone through the full process of, uh, of, of setting that up and publishing case studies in peer-reviewed journals. I've got lots of questions related to what he's gained from that process and how he went about doing it. And so we'll dive into that. This is really an episode for clinicians who are at that stage of wanting to be involved in research, but not necessarily doing a PhD or another type of research degree just yet. Although they hopefully they haven't ruled that out because part of my job is um, talking people into doing their PhD. But specifically what they wanna do is do research in their clinic. So this is one way that you could go about it. And we're going to hear about how Yarp did that. So Yarp Switters, welcome back to Physio Foundations again, round three. Thank you. Still enjoying it. <laughs> He's still here. <laughs> He's come back for more. So tell us about research in, in your clinic. Let's jump straight into this one. What if, so we can go back and listen to the previous episodes and hear about um, your specialty um, if people are interested what did you do? What research did you do in your clinic and why did you do it? So I've published uh, three articles now. The first one was a systematic review and I published then two case studies. And in general, um, so perhaps a little bit of the introduction. So I was at, uh, when we met each other in 2008 during UniSA, then uh, my goal in that master degrees was only to get through and to finish my masters. And then already uh, talking to you, working together with you, I already had the idea you already wanted to uh, publish your master degree. And I had no idea that you could, um, you could do it. You publish your master thesis. And when I finished the master course in Australia, after that, I was at the idea, oh, I, I would like to publish one something. And then when I started my second master in osteopathy, before I already um, turned in the subject, I already had the idea I, I really want to publish it. So I need to prepare myself well and to see if I need to find a subject or something to, to uh, do research on, but it's not been done before. And in one way, a systematic review was a little bit straightforward. Or it was a little bit easier to, to conduct. And then uh, I found an, an, an area of, of visceral manipulation and its effect on, on low back pain. And I started finding studies and I noted that on Prospero, for example, that there were not any other ones uh, coming up or was not done before. And that's how I uh, started with the master degree and I finished it as well with the master degree. And after I finished it, then I had the help from you again to help me to get through it. 
and then I um, published that that uh, that master thesis, um, which I was really happy about and I was really proud of it. And then when I finished it, and I thought, well, I had a lot of help from Luke, and perhaps I can do it with a little bit of less help from Luke, and that's why I tried to do a case study to see if I can do it by myself as well with a little bit of uh, expertise of you. And um, and the second one I did was a, a red flag. I described the red flag, uh, what was like in, in the clinic. And my last publication, it's coming out in, in December of this year, is uh, about chronic pelvic pain in a patient which I saw and which I treated uh, with osteopathy and a little bit of the combination of the biopsychosocial model. And that's a little bit of my introductions in one way. It was a little bit of my, I can say, of my insecurity, a little bit of my doubts. Can I do it? And then a little bit of the, um, yeah, looking forward and to see how it goes. And, and um, yeah, you start the way and see how far it can come. And, and that, thank God, it, 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 the end was a publication and it didn't finish somewhere in between. <laughs> and uh, that's a little bit of the way I got involved with, uh, with, with, with research on, on my own in my own clinic. Mm. Because there's a lot of work to ultimately not have that publication. It's an all or nothing affair, isn't it? It, It's either a Word document that sits on your computer long forgotten or it's a publication in a peer-reviewed journal with all those benefits. So you answered my question, which was, so you sort of had this motivation to publish coming from the examples that you'd seen in our master's, so we did a clinical master's training at the University of South Australia together um, and the part of that which had... I think honors equivalence. We certainly had a, a research component in there. Um, yeah. And then there was an opportunity there to publish the systematic review that we did as a part of that honors thesis, um, which Susanna and I did. Um, so we sort of pushed that at the end of our, we had that, that interest. And we had the same drive. We wanted to publish it. Why? Why did we really want to publish it? It's, it was just because it, we did all the work and a publication has benefits in terms of, um, of you learning how to do it and also putting your work publicly in a journal and, and the peer review process. Um, and also that you can go and present at conferences as well. And rather than just listening, there's nothing wrong with going to a conference and listening, but you, you do listen a lot more actively when you've um, participated in research yourself. And that's something that I tell students that, that, that some of the benefits if they do our research program within in our degree and if they can push forward and publish that it's a different feeling when you go to a conference and um you know when you're talking to other people if you've published yourself and if you're presenting in that conference and it's just kind of made the whole career more exciting and fulfilling and it, to, to me it led to my phd because i used my publications to get into my phd to get my score up for my scholarships that's how it works you work in a research center you've got publications um, and you've got GPA, grade point average from your degree, and you use that to get a score and get in to your degree. But I'm, I mean, I've talked about that a few times on the podcast with Christian Asadnik and um, with Jody and many others about sort of the pathway into a formal research degree. Here, I want to talk to you about someone who's not doing a PhD, who's really becoming a specialist in their area in the clinic and is using publications or so systematic reviews and case studies to position themselves as an expert. It's interesting. I realize I'm talking too much here. It's interesting. Tim Travail, two episodes ago, three episodes ago now, spoke about using social media and 
and, and that's that engagement and podcasts and Instagram, for example, as positioning yourself as an expert, you've really done that through your, your clinical work and publications. You've got, you, know, you, you put your publications forward and social media, you've got them on the wall of your clinic and you say, I publish in this area. Here's a case study. So tell us about that. Tell us about how the systematic review and the, and the case studies and the, and the future work you're going to do helps position you as an expert or helps develop your clinical expertise? Well, yeah, that's a good question. There, there are a few points. So especially when I talk about the last uh, publication of, of the, the chronic pelvic pain. So in the beginning, when you start to specialize in a certain area, is uh, what we discussed in our last podcast, is you start reading a lot, you, you, you download publication, you buy some books, you hear some podcasts, you do perhaps some online course, and you're just swallowing a lot of information. And at one point, you need to structure that information. And then to see, okay, where did I read it somewhere, but where do I read it? Where does it stand? How does it work? And you start to combine everything. And I think that's the big advantage also from a publication because you have your certain belief and you have your certain ideas, but then you really have to find the reference with it as well. And how does it fit in your clinical picture, how you treat this patient? And sometimes you find some loopholes. You really think, okay, I really had a completely different belief about it as it has actually is written down. Sometimes you hear on, on, on courses as well, they mention it in, in a certain way, but you feel like hey, there's hardly any research to confirm it. And that's a little bit of, of uh, the environment or the, the enjoyment what I have. It is just to structure the knowledge and really challenge yourself, your own beliefs, your own biases, and uh, really find as good as it gets strong evidence or evidence references to support it. And that really, really helps me in one way to structure my knowledge. Then you write it down. So that's a little bit of, I say, the introduction part. Then you have my patient. So I always use my questionnaires. So I have every patient in the beginning, they get a questionnaire and I follow them through. And that's a little bit in one way because it's sometimes hard for them to describe it and you have really have in one way a little bit objective slash subjective overview to, to see if it improved or it didn't improve and that also helped a little bit of, of uh, to make it a little more reliable and a validated outcome measurement and uh, making that so and describe a little bit what treatment options I did and, and did it improve and so on and sometimes you find it as well when the patient comes in and it says, oh, it goes, it, it went a lot better. I feel much better. And then you have your outcome measurement and you see, like, well, it's the same point score as the last time. So, for example, when it's a uh, numeratic pain rating scale or something. And it's interesting to see, to say, okay, they say it's going to be better, but from the objective point of view, it's not going really getting better. But what can be changed is that they be, they're more active they do more, they have the feeling of control or they have the feeling uh, have more social interactions with their friends anymore. So in general, the quality of life improves, but the pain stays the same. So in overall, it gets better, but one certain point didn't improve. And that's always for us also to get to, to remember and, and uh, look at our own biases. And by working it out, so in my case studies, so, so you write everything down, you reflect it, and it's a great way to learn again. And to see, okay, perhaps I had to ask more about that. Perhaps that was not so clear. And then after part, you start with the discussion part. And this the importance part, what the patient mentioned that did him really well. So, for example, it was physical activity or it was his breathing exercises. 
you're trying to find, okay, is there any evidence behind it? Why uh, breathing exercise, diaphragma breathing exercise improved his complaints? Why does it improve? What is the idea behind it? And you work that out in your discussion part. So at the end of the paper, you really have gained much more knowledge. Your knowledge is way more structured and that helps you as a clinician uh, huge steps advance. So you have a huge advancement in that way. And it's really, you don't have to read it again. It's all in your mind because you've read it so many times, you rewrite it so many times and so on, especially when, when we talk perhaps later about the reviewing process, which always is, is a challenge on its own. <laughs> and, uh, and you have to yeah, keep your nerves down and, and, and uh, yeah. It's a challenge, but it's 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 a great way to learn. And and at the end, with the end results, you know other people are going to read it. Uh, you, perhaps you can help some other clinicians. Uh, it can help patients as well, especially it's a, a theme where it's not much knowledge is about. So you can help them as well to make it more acceptable or some of the, a little bit of the greater knowledge of, of, of the community. And you can send it also in, in your in your area to the urologist and say, look, there's a paper out of it. And, and it, it helps a little bit to describe uh, what the symptoms is and what an, perhaps an, an, a treatment option is for, for certain patients. Yeah. So structuring the information that you collect in the clinic and the way that you think about it and the, all the information you've gathered on the topic yourself, supporting what you do clinically with research evidence, so bringing those two parts of, or two of the parts of the evidence-based practice paradigm together, the clinical evidence and the research evidence, helping to challenge your biases, which is really important, part of reflective practice. And then the fourth point you mentioned was sharing the expertise and the and the case in the in the, um, the case of the case studies with other patients and practitioners. That's. They're really the four really important benefits of doing research. So, and you enjoy it as well. You, you started off with an itch that you needed to scratch. You mentioned insecurity and perhaps doubts about whether you could do that. And now you've confirmed that you are, you know, you are able to do that and you're going to publish more research. Um, so what's, I mean, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to a question I wanted to ask. I had a, I was going to go forward and say sort of what's next, what's the next case study. We'll come back to that. I'm interested in the process because you, you said that you have a questionnaire that you use at the start and you seem quite organized with the way you track outcome measures through the patient journey. And, and then you think about, you reflect on which outcomes are improving and which ones aren't, which is really important. Does doing a case study make you improve your processes and your the outcome measures you're using, for example, or is it more that you had all that in place and you thought, well, I could write this up or was it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. So in one way, what I found out with working in, in this uh, theme of chronic pelvic pain is you notice it's a really hard time for the patients to talk about it. And it's in sometimes um, the, the the subjective examination go in every direction, and it helps me a little bit to give a structure in it, and it helps me a little bit to come back to certain questions. There are questions about uh, quality of life or the impact of symptoms, or also a little bit of the the bladder frequency and so on, or which uh, where's the pain regions. 
And it helps me when I read it. So in one way is, is um, you have a certain amount of points what they have. And uh, then you can say, okay, how severe is it? And which issues we need to attend to or we, which need to discuss. So sometimes it's uh, in one way it improves really bad. And they didn't talk about the, the bladder frequency. And one time when you read the, read the questionnaire and it pops up in that way, or they have a really uh, quality of life to say it's terrible, it's horrible. And you mean like there could be also some other mental health issues as well because it's so bother that bothersome for them, and it's good to discuss it. And in one way, it's over time you say a six point is a, a significant difference, and, and it goes in both ways. Sometimes you really have to feeling oh, it's a big improvement. Sometimes of ten or twelve points, and then you ask them, so what did you do? What was different last time? So this is a good feedback as well. And sometimes they say it got way worse. So the, the symptoms are worse than in the beginning. And then you also ask them, okay, what happened? What went on? And you try to reflect and you try that they have a look at their own pattern as well to recognize their own pattern. What are aggravating factors? What are ease of factors? And sometimes it could be that they have the pain during a, a, a work life. So the normal working week, they have a lot of pain and they go on holiday and there's no pain at all. And that's a little bit, you also try to find out, so, hey, that doesn't really fit an, a mechanical or structural source. And then the other way around is to say, so somebody says, hey, I'm always at this certain time of day, my pain starts. So they always at seven o'clock in the evening, the pain starts. And then one day they don't have it. They went out with their friends and they had a couple of drinks, they had food and there was no pain at all. And then you try to find out to, to make the connection. Okay, what was different? Uh, you had more distraction or it was a really uh, pleasant social intercourse with the other ones and you talked about it and you had no time to think of it at all. And even if you drank a glass of alcohol with normal aggravators, it was not a problem at all. And that's a little bit also to help me as a therapist to say where we are. And it also helps me to give a feedback to the patient and that they going to try to recognize the pattern uh, what they're in at. Yeah. It's and a pattern recognition approach, isn't it? Where you're trying to, rather than you, so you mentioned biases and your, your questions you'd routinely ask and, and the, the direction that you'd be led in normally based on your experience and your biases by using patient reported outcome measures and reflecting on what they're saying, you can, you can try to get a, a different uh, view on those, on those patterns. That's an interesting way of putting it. And then, of course, there, there's the benefits of having a validated patient reported outcome measure there on record, so you can you know, track progress across time. You, you mentioned the minimum detectable change or clinically important change, which is a concept. Why, why don't we just define that for listeners? I'm sure many people understand what that is, but so the clinically important change in the outcome measure, for example, what's that? So, for example, the, the, uh, the NHAs so or the chronic prostate syndrome index they so it's they say it's around that it's about six points so it's meaning so the difference is not uh, of coincidence so it's not because they have a, a i don't know at that hour of a day they feel a little bit better in comparison to 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 another point of time so it's a really a difference but it's a it's a clinical significant difference so what they did over the last couple of days or over the last weeks and not like not just one point so, for example, with the numeratic pain rating scale, I think it's two points, uh, which is a significant clinical difference. So when they come in at, at six out of 10 pain, and the next time they come in at three out of 10 pain, you know, okay, there is a clinic, clinical significant difference. And when it's just only one point, 
it could just be coincidence. And that's a little bit of uh, for us as well to uh, to have ever ever good feedback. Mm. What outcome then, measures did you use in the in the case studies that you did? Were they mainly so, patient reported outcome measures? Yeah, so I know I've general, read them all. <laughs> so we'll come back to them. I roll in that because that's some that's that's actually an important point. We brushed over that, but uh, I've read them all many times. But tell everyone what you so what outcome measures you did because this is is maybe piquing the interest of some people who have really interesting cases. Um, they're not necessarily frequent presentations. Then so people have, they have similar presentations and you can't get an average of what they're doing. It may be more appropriate to do a case study or case series, even if it's not published. So one of the first questions will be, well, what, what's the question and what are the outcome measures? What are you tracking over time? So what did you use? So, uh, so the numerating, numerating pain rating scales on PRS and then the NH uh, chronic prostatitis symptom index. Yeah. Those are the ones I used. I mean, when I worked out this case uh, since last year, I'm I'm also using uh, that's a little bit of the central sensitization uh, inventor, inventory okay. uh, CSI uh, questionnaire, and that's so the other ones are a little bit uh, the first two what I mentioned are a little bit of the going through the process of the therapy. So I mean, so every time in the beginning of the treatment, uh, and they have to fill it out. And the other one, the central sensitization inventory, that I only use it at the beginning, the first treatment. And that's a little bit to see if there's any central sensitization going on or if there's any nociplastic pain going on. Hmm. And that's a little bit of a question. They have, um, I think of how many, uh, many questions in that way of, um, let's see, I, was, I think it's around 25 questions they are. And, and it's about also in the general is, is they have problems with the sleep, that they have pain in, in, in the TMJs, they have the pain in the pelvic. And it gives a little bit of an indication, is there something nociplastic going on as well? Mm. And that's a little bit of, not a, a follow-up through, that's a little bit of a cutoff. So that they say when it's more than 40 points out of, I think if it's 100, then it's the likelihood that they have a, a, a central sensitization going on as well uh, is there. And that can influence the prognosis as well. So the prognosis can take longer if it's more than 40 points in comparison when it's less than 40 points. Mm. So you have to have a good working knowledge of those outcome measures and know what you're expecting to see and what difference is is different, is bigger than the error or the, or the natural variation in that. So you have to have that, that level of knowledge. But if you're working in this area anyway, we're assuming that it's something that will be helpful for you to have more of or that you may be developing anyway, so then let's go back a step and talk about the benefits of case studies. We, we Listeners are probably familiar with the hierarchy of evidence where, you know, so it's a concept where you have a synthesis of randomized controlled trials and a systematic review at the top. And then you have your, um, your randomized controlled trials and prospective cohort studies. And, and then somewhere lower down, are the case studies because they only reflect the, the clinical care of one or two or two people or a series of people if it's a case series um, and there's no deliberate intervention and randomization. You're really just describing somebody. So the, the issue of bias is you can choose somebody who had a beneficial treatment and who you chose who was you know, who benefited from your treatment and then you can describe that clinical care. 
that's often where people leave the case study and say, well, I, I won't read that because that's lower on the traditional hierarchy of evidence. Case studies play a really important role in describing clinical care. And you, of all the people, should know um, why that is because you've published two of them. And I feel like this is a misunderstood um, area of research or a type of paper. So why are, re- why are case studies important, particularly for people uh, with less common conditions or in your mm-hmm. clinical care, in, in, your, in your clinic? In, in general, I, I think it's um, so the, the big advantage of a case study is, is how you say it's, it's a high external uh, validity. So it's mm. meaning because so like the setting and the practical approach are really um, yeah, in, in a normal clinic, so normal circumstances. So it, it, I say it, it mimics the real world. And I think that's a really uh, important issue with it as well. And um, so it's no, no randomization, what you mentioned before. There's no in that way um, uh, of which patient goes. You don't really have an, uh, in one way you have, of course, an, an exclusion as well or inclusion. But with a case study is a little bit, the, because for my patient, he was in a normal randomized controlled trial. He would be excluded because he was operated already two times or he was excluded with his age. So he already had oh, the, the duration of his symptoms. And that's a little bit of the problem as well. So what do you do when the RCT confirms it's a really good treatment strategy, but your patient doesn't fit in? And with some so a patient case study can help you if the patient really doesn't fit the normal randomization or normal inclusion of, a, of an RCT. Mm. The second thing is really what I think is quite helpful, why I like enjoy to read case studies, is that you really see uh, the personalized or the, the tailor-made uh, intervention strategy. So what does he need? What is his problem from the first to the second treatment? What, how do you need to progress this or how do you need to train, uh, change it? Uh, what kind of advice does he need? What is the problem that shows up perhaps at the fifth time? And that's a little bit of what a case study is, is, is really uh, helpful with. And that's, uh, I think in this way, it's, it's an important as, as well uh, to have uh, always case studies. And I think also, sometimes by we say by a um, so, for, so for lumbar pain. Sometimes I think it's also there are so many RCTs out of it. I think sometimes it could be really helpful to have a case study out of there as well, just to go back to the basics again. And sometimes it is uh, the RCTs are really good and really helpful, but sometimes it's quite complicated. Or the um, for example, when you work in a city like Vienna, so when you have a, the inclusion for an RCT, everybody had an MRI for the back. But when you work on a land, sometimes it's not an option that they get an MRI. And that's a little bit of, of a differentiation of which people are included in the RCTs. That's why I think it's really important to have some case studies out of there just to see, okay, what are this expert doing in which case? What are the inclusion of this patient? For example, with a new ACL, uh, when you have a, th- a third time or a fourth time rupture of your ACL, there will, will not be included in a normal RCT, but you, you will definitely see some of these patients in your clinic. And then it's a little bit of questions, how do you deal with it? How, uh, and that will be, re- I think it would be really interesting to see how it works and, and what these experts are doing with it. That's a really good point. You've got the description of the management, which is always so truncated and and limited by word limits and, and also the, the strict um, 
the protocol of that RCT, for example, it's always the criticism of someone who's trying to apply the findings of the RCT to their practice is that it's 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 always very limited and th- th- they play their part. They're really important, but often the case studies are dismissed, forgotten, where they can play a really important role in that description of management. And you can put them alongside the new and non-traditional um, forms of um, showcasing expertise, like online masterclasses. Yeah, there's many of them, many companies now that you can go on right now and you pay for service or you can watch some of them for free and you can watch a clinician managing a patient and applying that research and using really the same format you've described that's in the traditional journal publication, the case study. So we're just very lucky. We've got lots of different ways of approaching our um, professional development. But So you've given a really good summary of why a case study, why you're interested in them. And then I guess the next question is what I almost asked 15 minutes ago, which is what's next? So why why don't we talk about the the two papers that you've done, the case studies, and then where you're going to go from those. So what what was the first one about, the first case study? The case study was uh, about a a, a splenic size of the spleen, the size of the spleen. So there was a patient of mine who came with a thoracic uh, thoracic pain and it really, uh, it sounded really mechanical in that way. And then uh, we did the examination, couldn't find anything in in the part of the osteopathy is also the visceral examination. And then you find a little bit of a hard spot on the left but a little bit around the area around the uh, around the stomach as well, and that was a little bit of. Uh, and then also the information came. It was hard to breathe in. It was lying on the right side. It was really unpleasant. Really quickly, the feeling of being full, still being hungry, but but couldn't eat more in that way. And that was a little bit of uh, uh, what I thought. Okay, that that needs so that uh, you say the gut feelings again. Something is not really doesn't sound right. It's better that you have. Uh, an extra examination to see if is something else over there. And then it was the spinning size uh, was coming out, was the diagnosis. And then I was I thought it was really interesting, especially in the osteopathy. There are not many, I think in my knowledge, it was the first red flag case report in the osteopathic uh, literature. And I thought that could be really helpful, especially because visual manipulation is in Europe really big. Uh, so many physiotherapists are also doing these courses, all the, all the osteopaths is in the in the education in it as well. I think it's really important is sometimes you can find a red flag as well in this area. And it's really important to see, um, so uh, what are the symptoms with these red flags? What can you do? What is the referral area and so on? And that is uh, definitely a, a good warning sign and always like to keep in mind there could be something what you cannot treat. Mm, and this can, the, the lessons, and the explanation of the the process of clinical reasoning and how you got to the point of making that diagnosis um, have applications to general practice and in any number of health professions who are working with patients and see them. So, so, th- so just just to summarise, this person came in with thoracic pain. You could have quite easily gone on with a series of treatments addressing their thoracic spine mobility and pain and and aggravating factors. Quite often. Um, musculoskeletal pain and visceral and, and other more sinister causes of pain kind of look similar, don't they? They sometimes, yep. it, did it look a lot like a thoracic problem initially? Uh, a thoracic spine problem. So, so a, 
non-specific no. back pain, for example? Yeah, it, it, in, in in certain ways it was because it uh, when you say um, so it was like uh, the the lying position. So it was like um, it was eased by lying in supine, and when she was moving in another motion, it, it was painful. Twisting motions were uh, unpleasant. Prolonged sitting, prolonged standing were, were unpleasant, and then you have the feeling well. The typical fits in in, in a uh, musculoskeletal uh, pattern, and that's a little bit of uh, and that's also in the I think in general it's always actually you always have a little bit of your own clinical patterns popping up and they say this could be this could be this, and then it it was a little bit more than when you did your subjective examination when you looked at the thoracic spine and then you went a little bit to part of the 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 visceral examination when when you had the feeling that something doesn't fit in that area and that was a little bit of where you had the feeling mm, how the, the challenge at that time was a little bit also the communication how do you communicate that to a person that uh, perhaps further examinations are important uh, in, instead of uh, saying the worst things possible and send them away <laughs> and that that that's also as a little bit of a challenge how do i communicate it uh, correctly and sometimes when you're lucky, perhaps you have direct contact with a GP. Sometimes you just uh, write a letter and you give them with them and you just uh, summarize the points, what you found. And, and you really f- summarize those points with a little bit of direction that the GP or the, the specialized knows already, okay, there is something not correct and they're going to do the further examinations with it. Yeah, you find a lump or a visceral pattern of pain referral and um, alarm bells are going on, going off within you as yep. a practitioner. And it's a really important point of, well, how do you then manage that in an empathetic way and not to create, uh, if you go back to your last episode, the analogy of the um, the alarm system going off or the na- the noisy neighbours <laughs> with all of the obvious effects on the nervous system and the you know, uncertainty and psychosocial yellow flags and the rest of those. So, so you manage that one and get the person off to appropriate investigations if needed. And then ultimately you were taking a, uh, had a management approach for this splenic cyst. So you were, what did you do for the management? No, there was in general, there was, it's just, uh, the case is more a little bit out the patient uh, presented itself. What are my clinical findings? It was more diagnostic reasoning. Diagnostic yeah. And, yeah. and then the clinical yeah. reasoning behind it. And then it was a little bit more of the, the follow-up. So, uh, so what they made, they made an, uh, an, uh, say an x-ray of it. And on the x-ray, you really saw uh, the spleen as well. So it was cultivated completely. They had an MRI of it. We also can really see huge the, 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 the spleen in that way. And then already the spleen is always a little bit, usually spleen uh, injuries is usually start with an uh, accident. So they have a, a trauma or anything in that way. And it's also a little bit more acute. And that what didn't fit the pattern at all with this patient. And that was also a little bit of a challenge because it's never straightforward, a, a red flag. So it's always a little bit... Uh, uh, yeah, you always have to look for it, and you have your your uh, what you learn at, at, during the education. It has to be like this. These these are the symptoms, but it's never like that. There's always something what fits in and doesn't fit in. She didn't have any night pain, so there was only the pain she had was during uh, work or during sports or during the household and so on, but not night pain. 
And that was just, and this uh, night pain was more when she was lying on the right side. That was really unpleasant, but lying on the back, it wasn't. So it sounded really mechanical in that way as well. And there's, uh, and there's a little bit of the, the big challenges. And so when I uh, got in contact or when I saw her later on a couple of months later or something, then uh, she mentioned what had happened and she had got surgery as well, where the spleen was removed and so on. And that was a really also a wake up of a wake up call. She said, oh, it's really interesting. And then you start looking in your notes, what I've written down. Uh, then you are uh, to see if, okay, how can I, how can I work with that and perhaps get a publication out of it? Mm. And so it's, it's in terms of the publication, in terms of that type of research and writing that up, it really suits those uncommon not to be missed conditions that don't fit a pattern and really for the purpose of sharing that clinical reasoning and that diagnostic reasoning and the, and the outcome of that and, and that the process with other clinicians. So that's, that's a really interesting summary of, of that one and, and the reasons you did it. And what was the second case study? That's what we mentioned before. That was the, yeah. the chronic pelvic pain. Um, Let's talk about that one. Um, uh, what do you want to know, or how? Yeah, uh, let's, so, so so let's just summarize what that um, what the case was, and and how it differs from the red flags. Um, so there's this so one's first, to be published, isn't it? So we whether we talk about that or not. Yeah, yeah. So that one is in December. It's going to be published. So so it's yet to be published. Let's just more talk about the process of that one. So was there anything else that you learned from the process of publishing? that case study compared to the first one? Uh, yeah, so the first one was a little bit, um, so when you have the, the processing process, or a, you mean when you send it to a journal? Or, or, well, we, or, we or, can do that as well. Why don't we do uh, that? In fact, we, this one hasn't been published yet, so let's not go into its details um, because that's you don't do that before things have, have been published. Um, let's talk about that. Do you, did you need ethics approval? To, to publish your case studies? No, so you need a, a informed consent of, 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 um, of the patients and a written informed consent. So you have some uh, online as well who are written already uh, or summarized uh, how the contract looks at it. And it mentions so that they uh, agree with, uh, so the publishing the, the data in sense of, of the history of the planes, not the name and so on, not the address. But they have to uh, put a signature on it. They have to, to, and that's that's an important part of it, because if it has to be always respectful towards the the patients. And the first case study was a little bit. We published also some of the pictures of of the X-ray or the removed spleen. It was really made it more the the the, the article even more interesting because you can really see it. Yeah. And with the say the second one is also the same thing. Is it's. Uh, so you get the informed consent. Then when you have the first draft of the paper before you send it away, they read it through and they say, I agree with it, what I sent for it. It's, it's, it's the reality or is what we really mentioned. And that's a really important part. And they, they ticked that in, in the shoes and then they, they signed it. And that's it's, it's usually by the editor is requested as well. Sometimes you have to send it into them that they can see it's really been done. Mm. So it's really in partnership with the patient compared to de-identified data that sits as an average and a standard deviation within a, a big trial. So that's a, that's a big point of difference. So the key point there is that you can do it. Clinicians can do this. 
there's journals that publish case studies specifically and include case studies. A simple search will tell you which ones they are. Uh, articles, and sorry, journals have um, guidelines for authors for yep. publishing and you can look through there and see all those requirements. It's all there. Um, and the data storage as well would be, there'd be a requirement to store this, store the data securely, de-identify everything and then involving the person in the in the initial stages of consent and then prior to publication. Hmm. So that's that's a little bit of the, the, the way it goes. So it's, in the beginning, it's it's just a lot of organization as well, a lot of work that you talk to the patient and say why it's important and, and why you want to do it and so on. Mm. And you always have to find out a little bit, is there something in that area where he published or recently or not? What's the difference? And it's and that's a little bit of the challenge of well, so for the introduction. So it sounds perhaps a little bit bad, but you also have to sell it a little bit. So in the introduction of your paper, you really have to say, okay, that are the what we know already about it. That's a little bit the weak points, and that's why it's important. That's why this case study is important to help a little bit to to gain knowledge in this gray area. And I think that's that's uh, it's all, and it's the introduction to, to write it in that way is also an, a, a huge learning point as well, just to see okay what's out there and what's not. Mm. It, just to write an introduction, you need to do a really thorough review of the literature, which is something that you might have. You know, in the future list, I'll do that one day. I'll sit there and read literature on this topic, but it does. It really forces you to, as you said earlier, to structure information and find references and, and challenge your biases and and then ultimately get uh, new information and um, new form of information out to other practitioners um, to benefit them. So, yeah. That, so if you haven't really thought of case studies before, if you've, you haven't really been reading them, you think, well, that, you know, that's just a case study. Um, Yarp's given you a very nice summary of the purpose and um, yeah, the process. Course, the, uh, it's really good. The uh, care care guidelines is called. That's the uh, it's, it's all the the journals who, who publish uh, uh, case studies. They recommend the care guidelines, and in the guidelines, I think I don't know how many points there are, but for example, one point is in the title you need to have the word case report or a case study in it. And that's a little bit how the abstract needs to work, how the introduction is, and and so on. And that really gives you a good, clear way to go and, and how to fill everything up, that everything is in there uh, to say it, it, it produces a good quality of a case study. So that's the care guidelines is definitely recommended. And you can download it also for, uh, I think, on, yeah, Google Scholar, you find it. It usually is a free download anyway. Mm. So you can always that's, that's connect, yep. yeah, connect with Yarp and I if you are specifically interested in in this topic. But that's, there's probably an under-discussed area of evidence-based practice is the case study, but really interesting that you as a practitioner in your own clinic um, as a busy person have been able to go through that process and do that. So what's next? Well, yeah. <laughs> so in, in general, so you're always a little bit, in one way, a little bit limited as well. So the advantage of why I do case studies and systematic reviews, because it's easy to do for me at home. I don't have a, uh, ethics between it. I don't have a, a lot of people's administration is, is, is reasonable, easy to do and a good overview. And uh, one way, there's also no pressure on it. And that's, I think that's always pleasant as well. You can do it because of your own tradition. You may do it, but you not, must not do it. 
and now it's just a little bit to see where perhaps other um, I say areas where you can uh, improve or where you can say okay there is is some gain in more knowledge or there is some knowledge out there but it's not structured and, and not really quite clear at this moment uh, uh, what the specific topic is but it's in general going to in, in men's health or men's issue in that way mm, it's all helping yeah. you develop your uh, specialization in the area it's really yep. the same process you'd use in a formal specialization program where you you you're really developing your clinical reasoning and you're anchoring that to the literature so i mean you could do case series as well with a series of people in the, with the same approach it, there's only be- one of you <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing so you, you've got to choose something that this is already amazing it's already ambitious and you've you know, published three papers off, off your own back uh, we, we touched on my role earlier I mean I, I think you it's quite difficult to do this on your own but as as you've listened to YARP has a ma- clinical masters and a masters well t- you got two clinical masters in physiotherapy and osteopathy both of those had research components um, so if you count them plus your GPA and your um, your publication record, assuming you'd have a good score required for a PhD if you ever went into a PhD, is that in, on the radar, do you think? Or do you think you're a clinician really, researcher? <laughs> it sounds really interesting, but is in, in Europe it's a bit different so it's, it's it's so you have to do it in another country so so you have some good universities who offers it and it's a little bit of of, of um especially when you have your own clinic it's a little bit what's the advantage of it yeah so one way yeah. it would be really interesting but on the other hand it takes a lot of time a lot of money in way or it you cost your money to do it or when you're not working in your clinic and that's a little bit of the area that i'm still doubting it would be really really interesting but it has to be also in an area where I'm, uh, where I'm really, I say, found of. Where we have mm. feeling as the energy is flowing in that area. That's interesting me, or that's interesting for me, and that's a little bit what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of. And at the moment, I have a lot of satisfaction out of this publication, and mm. also with the advantage of what I mentioned before. There's no pressure on it, and, and if I do it, I do it, and if I don't do it, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> then it's as you mentioned before, it's just a word file on my computer. <laughs> yeah. There'll be people out here asking and thinking about these questions. Do I, I am interested in research. Do I get involved with other people's research and just, you know, a, a small number of hours per week. That would be interesting. Yeah. Involved in, as a clinician, as a, as a partner in someone's research project, you know, as an external supervisor, for example, there's lots of ways you can get involved in research that don't involve going and doing a research degree. If you're in the public um, system and you, want to take a leadership role or lead research projects a phd is giving you specific skills in Mm -hmm. it's an apprenticeship in research is what it is Um, so it makes sense if you're going into academia so teaching and research often it's prerequisite to have a phd but for me it certainly gave me a lot of the skills i use every day in terms of you know clinical um, teaching but also in um, in conducting research and supervising students so it's got its advantages, but I think you've answered that question well. I mean, you, you're you're pretty happy where you are. You're very busy seeing patients. What you're offering the world is helping people with complex conditions. And then somehow on top of all that and running a business, 
you're managing to be research active as well. So I think it's a really interesting story. There's not too many people I know that do that. I know a few people. Susanna's one of them. Susanna, before she started her PhD, um, listeners to the podcast know that that's my wife, Susanna Perriton, who's writing up her thesis right now, which is a time that nobody enjoys in a PhD student's life. It's the worst part. So she's she's getting close to the end and um, that's why she hasn't been on these episodes for a while, but um, she's in that position where um, she's going to be a clinician with a PhD and she will then take all of that knowledge and that thinking and that, that underpins what you do in your PhD back into the clinic. So you don't have to do it any one way. There's lots of different avenues. And I don't think people talk about this enough. I, I certainly had no idea when I went into it, there was there were there were less people out there as well who were clinicians doing PhDs. So certainly the number every year goes up. So there's a lot more people you can talk to about this as well. But and this is quite impressive because you only if you have your private life as well, and it's it's it's, it's not only your work and, and and doing your research, but you also have to manage it with your private life and your free time and and so on. So it's it's a it's a big challenge, and especially for Suzanne, a lot of respect how she's doing it and, 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 and how well she's doing it. Yeah, she's doing well. But she's got to get her to the end. <laughs> <laughs> next, year, next year, start enjoying things again. But now it's, I mean, that, while we're being so honest with this is because PhD is, is, is a very, very difficult uh, undertaking for most people. And it's really in the, the write-up of that and submission is really challenging. So that's something we, you have to acknowledge before you go into it. So it's you mentioned the expense of it, and the, and I'm talking about the the difficulty of actually doing it. Uh, big deal. And now here I am. If, if anyone from Monash University Physiotherapy is listening to this, they're going to be saying, "What are you talking about this for? <laughs> Don't tell anyone this." So part of my job will be is to take people who want to be research active and, and supervise them, and um, and and convince them to do a PhD. And I, I can do that. There's so many benefits to it, but you've got to go into it eyes wide open as well. And there are other ways you can get research active on your pathway there if you if you do go there in the end. And you've summarized that today for us. I think it definitely really well. a good start is, is, is with the master's on its own. And when you have the opportunity to publish your master thesis, I think that's a, a really, really good start. And then you know how to write a master's it's, it's, it's in a in publication, less words. But then afterward, you learn the process as well, the, the reviewing process and so on. And that's a really good learning moment and to see how it, how it works, uh, science or, or publications and so mm. on. The peer review process. It's like, <laughs> what's the saying? Democracy. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the best we've got. But yeah, it, it's, it is democracy, isn't it? You've, you, you've got all sorts of, you don't have to agree with it, but it's the best sort of system. And you've got, yep. you, you've, you've always got reviewer too making life difficult for you. But without that, you don't have the rigor. So it's yeah, going through peer review for the first time. And even the submission process, formatting and, just, and submitting your article, you'd think would be straightforward. It never is. It's, no. <laughs> it's an archaic old process that takes it's days. A, I don't Try and error. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of barriers to publishing research. And then it, it, it takes months before it's in print as well. It's, it really yeah. is a funny old system in a modern world where you and I can talk, publish this podcast tomorrow, and it goes out there, yet it takes months and months and months to 
and to do the admin related to a journal <laughs> article, not, not the peer review. That's that's yeah. that's important. That takes time, but just all the processing and everything else. Anyway, criticizing the journal publication industry. Nah, well, you mentioned it, it's it's good, but it's it's a long process. It, it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, and and then yeah. you have those short terms where uh, the, the deadline is, and, and you have to uh, correct all the the. Uh, the advice or when you say you can change that and that's you have not much time and usually when you have a, a bad luck it's it's always during your holiday you can, <laughs> <laughs> that's the classical one yeah <laughs> and that's the but on the other hand i've i've i'm, I'm glad that the, the reviewers are doing it. it it helped my paper a lot it improved it so, so it's a good to have somebody yeah. who takes their time and don't forget that they don't get anything for it either so it's that's also right. uh, mm. uh help for the scientific community and, and and it takes a lot of time to read it and and to assess it and and so on and i think definitely my last paper helped uh, to improve it and it was a good another view on my paper and and the critics were were, were useful mm. it, it's a really good way to look at it uh, so there we go so we've given everyone hopefully something that they can find useful in terms of the context of case studies and the process that you used as a practitioner to become research active and to sort of develop your specialty through research. And this really contrasts to a couple of episodes ago, we had Tim Travail on and he was talking about um, you know, his use of social media and his engagement with people in those non-traditional um, modern forms of of engagement. So he's he's really active all over social media and Instagram, for example, and and sort of developing a name for himself in that way. And you've done it through a, a more traditional format through publishing research. So it's it's just really good to see those different ways of developing your expertise. Yeah, there's also a little bit the character you are. So, so I'm not really good in, in social media and writing on social media. So it's not my quality over there. And I enjoy the way I do it. That's my way. And you know, it, it fits my character more. And I think yeah. everybody has to find a little bit their way or, or I think that's, that, that's important. Mm. What did you say before we started recording this podcast? You looked it up on Google or Wikipedia. <laughs> so I said, I, I called you an independent clinical researcher and you said, perhaps I'm a what was it? A gentleman's. I'm a gentleman scientist. <laughs> gentleman scientist. An independent scientist. Historically, no, also known as a gentleman scientist. That's good. <laughs> I a made gen- it. I'm a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone's called you a gentleman. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, it sounds. It does sound like something that the old, um, yeah, Albert Einstein and. In that era, the old ones, Isaac Newton, and so on. That's <laughs> <laughs> a Renaissance man doing everything. Fantastic! That's great. Yeah, um, let's leave it there, and we'll do it again soon because we've yep. got more to talk about. This is our excuse to catch up from uh, across the oceans. So, really, really appreciate you sharing your uh, expertise with us again. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, and I really enjoy doing it. Fantastic. So until next time, this is Yarp Switters and Luke Perriton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning.